Hi, Bobby here. We had an episode planned for today, which I'm really excited about. A repeat guest that's come on for a topic we've never covered before, and we definitely should have by now. However, when it came to the editing, there was some distortion with the recording. Um, It is pretty rare where you listen back to the audio and there's noise distortion that wasn't there in the room. It's frustrating. It's not the whole episode. So on Monday, I'm re-recording the bit we need to replace. It's a big enough chunk that we couldn't just take it out. So the episode that was planned for today will be out in two Thursdays time. And instead today we have one of the most popular episodes of last year, which I think, given the time of year, feels particularly relevant to reshare. So please enjoy and I'll be back for real for the next one. This is Mental, the podcast to destigmatize mental health. I'm Bobby Temps. I'm Danny Hogan. Each Thursday, we delve into a factor or condition that influences the mind and how to better manage it. With special guests and stats you can trust, here we go. This week, we're talking all about intuitive fitness with the best-selling author, fellow podcaster and personal trainer, Tally Rye, whose perspective I find so refreshing around fitness and not only all the misconceptions about it, but also she brings such hope about how we can approach fitness in a way that is actually healthier for us, in a way that removes a lot of the bullshit and the misconceptions, and really drills down on what works for our bodies. And that is where this term intuitive fitness comes from. You may already be familiar with the term intuitive eating, and we very much organically talk about both in this episode, with those being so closely linked, and with that being a part of even personal training that people can so often overlook about its the relation to the rest of our life, and not just killing ourselves in a gym, and feeling bad about ourselves any moment we're not in the gym. And yet that seems to be an increasingly common mentality, that any time you are not training and pushing yourself to the limit, you are not doing enough. And we see it all the time. In the episode, we talk a lot about the kind of media pressures around this stuff, the diet culture, the social media pressures, and it's everywhere. And I don't even, (laughs) hopefully I don't get in trouble for this with the network, but I don't even mind saying we turned down a sponsor not long ago for this very reason the Peloton bikes that are so popular and hopefully because they're not selling as well as they used to in the pandemic, they don't have the free money to sue me for criticising them. But the way that they market themselves and indeed the way that they would have expected us to talk about the product was literally around phrases like, when you think your body can't go any further, keep pushing. When you're at breaking point, don't stop. And that is so against my mentality, what the show's about, and so toxic in the kind of behaviours that it can encourage. You know, we can, of course, push ourselves towards fitness goals and achieve incredible things, but that should never come at the expense of ignoring our body and pushing ourselves past limits that are healthy and times when we need to stop and take a break. In the episode, Tally talks about her concepts around always having permission to rest, that that should always be an option, no matter what kind of goalposts you set for yourself. And so I think that's all I have to say about the pre-interview rant. I'm so delighted to have met her. I may even get her to come on our other podcast dating games. But first, who's our sponsor? Let's find out. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. 
Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. So I'm Tally Rye and my first memory of being aware of mental health is actually not until I'm a teenager. And I remember my sister having her own experiences with her mental health, being diagnosed with OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, and dealing with all of that. And at the time, having no tolerance for it. I'm actually quite ashamed of how I dealt with it, of how kind of we all perceived it. No one really understood. And this is looking back into like the 2000s. There was just so much less awareness. And I look back now and think, oh my goodness, I wish I I have a much more compassion and understanding. And I, you know, perhaps, you know, I could have helped my sister a bit more. I could have been there for her in a more empathetic way. But at the time, I didn't know how to deal with it. And it's, yeah, I think it reflecting back, it makes me realize how far we've come in the mental health conversation and how much more we are aware of it you know, but it's been, yeah, it's been a journey (laughs) from that point. Mm. For sure. And you're right, we have come so far, but I'm glad that you're able to kind of look back at that time and still see as well personally how much your attitude has changed because as much as you would have been there for your sister, I think there can be just so much misunderstanding even still today that just makes us nervous to approach certain conversations, makes us a bit judgmental even in ways where Perhaps sometimes it's not until we get into this kind of work we even realise how much there is to unpick. And do you mind sharing a few of the sort of mentality shifts you've noticed from where you maybe approached her at the time and what you would do differently? Well, I think at the time, I mean, I was probably like 15 and I thought, you're being annoying because I was a complete brat of a teenager. And I I think I just had like no sympathy for clearly she was going through stuff. And I just thought, oh, you know, you're just being dramatic. And I didn't maybe realise that actually these were all symptoms of probably a much deeper issue, you know, symptoms of a much greater thing going on. And, you know, I would have been more supportive. And I look back and just in general with my sister, with my other sibling, like could have been able to point each other in the right direction at, at times for the proper help and support that we needed and you know later on in my teens when I was about 17 we lost my dad and that was probably my sort of introduction to kind of my mental health and grief and all of that stuff and and yet I still feel like things within myself were unrecognized by other people who whether it be at school or whatever felt like they should be looking after me and you know other people in my life felt like yeah, there was there was a lack of awareness, of understanding of how traumatic losing a parent is, I think. And I think, yeah, I think both with my sister's experience a few years prior and the loss of my dad, I, I just don't think we realised the, the impact it had on our mental health. I think that's the key part. We didn't realise the impact and we didn't realise then how that then kind of acts as a domino effect for the rest of your life. It's only however many years later, how old am I? nearly 14 years later that I'm able to kind of trace back a lot of things that happened in my 20s back to that time when I was 17 but it took therapy it took talking about my mental health it took being vulnerable and being able to even have a language and dialogue to explain how I've been feeling about things that I never had at the time to and the space I think to be able to talk about those things to truly understand the impacts it had and so being the age I am now, I really recognise I'm a lot more aware of not only the events in my life that have made me who I am, but I will try and be aware of the events and the people I love's life that probably shaped who they are today and shaped their behaviours today. And it's I think it's hopefully made me a more compassionate person, a more empathetic person, and just given me a great, a better understanding so I'm not that bratty 15-year-old going like, ugh. Get over it, <laughs> you know? 
Yeah, and this is something I'm always keen to talk about, the ups and downs of mental health and how we can learn so much from them. And empathy is something that consistently comes up as one of the the pros of how we can see experiences in others when we've been through certain things ourselves. And when it comes to loss of a parent, how do any of us or the people around us wrap our head around that? And I think oftentimes with grief, we end up doing it in parts, you know, that's, we we take it piece by piece. There's mm-hmm. those experiences that remind you that somebody is no longer there. There's parts of the grieving process around the funeral, around, you know, what you do with that person's possessions. And in a way, these things become the individual pieces of grief that then over time and, and often with therapy, we can piece together, like you say, to see, okay, who am I now? And how did this influence that? Truthfully, I didn't cope with it for a long time. I was, when my dad died, I was 17. I kind of had my time, you know, in the immediate aftermath. And then I kind of pushed it to the back of my mind and I wanted to go to drama school. And I just became really focused on that. I became really focused on so many things. And at the time, you know, cut to a few years later, whilst being at drama school, then focused really on exercise and focused really on eating and focused really on my body. And all of those things were me doing anything I could to distract myself from actually feeling how I needed to feel and actually processing a lot of what I had been through. And, you know, I, I mean, to present day have come through a really disordered relationship with food, a disordered relationship with exercise, And I attribute a lot of the trigger for my disordered relationship with food and exercise to be the death of my father. And, you know, I could not put those dots together. I could not join those dots until I was actually in a much better place with my relationship with food and gone to therapy and someone saying, you know, do you understand how you were trying to kind of distract and control and all of these things? Because it's too much to be able to actually sit with Mm -hmm. and process grief especially when you don't have the tools and the space and you know the knowledge of how to you know truly grieve and and lean into that process and so you know losing my dad has completely made me who I am today it shaped my early 20s in terms of how I related to food and exercise then it led to a career in fitness because I did those things because I thought I was really passionate about health and fitness, but actually I was just, I really liked being in a situation where I could control everything and people could tell me how great I was for and healthy and disciplined and amazing for just being in control. And then, you know, it's been the last kind of five, six years of slowly unpacking this disordered relationship with food and exercise. It's kind of led me to where I am personally and professionally today. Mm-hmm. And particularly that control piece that you mentioned there comes up a lot when talking about disordered eating and oftentimes the disordered relationships to exercise that can coexist there. And mm. it's interesting when, when we experience grief, like you say, it can so often be a trigger and it can almost seem random at times when you look back on it that we can cling to something, anything. You know, I talked to another guest recently who lost a a parent very young and for her it was academia that was the thing she you know completely obsessed over and really felt she had to control you partly to try and find some kind of feeling of safety that she'd lost and so as you've worked through a lot of this I'm interested in your perspective on of course the internal elements of you know how you were attempting and struggling to process this grief but also how much These behaviours can be backed up by external pressures, the kind of media we consume, the way that fitness and food are marketed to us in a way that is so often more consistent with, okay, how can we sell this best rather than what is actually good for us? Well, I think I turn to, you know, focusing my energy on food and exercise because I had learnt that as a coping mechanism because of diet culture. And I think if people don't know what diet culture is, I think of it as a system and an industry that values thinness 
above everything and wants you to pursue thinness at all costs because when you're thinner, when you're your dress size smaller, when you're lighter on the scales, you'll be happier, you'll be healthier, you'll be lovable, you'll be successful, you'll have everything you can possibly think of, you know, you will be great. And therefore, we're kind of told that the reason you don't feel amazing right now, the reason you don't feel super successful right now, the reason you don't feel like you're lovable right now is because your body doesn't look a certain way. So you should change that. And guess what? I can sell you something to change that. I've got this plan for you, this product for you, this thing for you. And all this messaging and all of this narrative is around giving people the kind of false sense of control that they can change their body. And if they change their body, they'll change their life. And so I completely appreciate why people turn to those things because it's easier to go, I'm going to go on a diet and I'm going to look like X, Y, Z than it is to go, I've lost a parent and I don't know how to deal with that. And for me personally, added context for my, my specific situation was I was at drama school. It's a very, mm-hmm. it's a very competitive environment, yeah. pressurized, competitive, so body image driven. It's so, you know, you are your product, your body is your product. And so you're looking in mirrors every day. You're in like leotard and tights or like hot pant and the crop top. And so you're comparing yourself to all the other girls in the room. And so you've got all of that pressure. So everything's telling you, well, you know it will solve this issue, all of these stresses you have in your life, all of this intense pressure you're feeling to be better than everyone else in the room. On top of that, all your other life stuff you've got going on with this kind of overhanging cloud of grief. If you just go to the gym more and eat healthy and eat clean and track your food, then all of your problems will be solved. You know, and if you become a really successful performer, then all of your problems will be solved. And it's like all of these things <laughs> are, like you said, like previous guests turning to academia, looking to the validation in some respects. Like if I can just find that, then I'll be good. And, you know, it's easier to do that than it is to really sit and reflect and look for validation within and actually be okay with you and know who you are and process your stuff and feel your stuff and so I think it's completely understandable why people look Mm -hmm. for ways to control I was looking to control this like I said this super competitive environment where you know the uncontrollable really the the uncontrollable literally it's especially I was doing musical theatre it's the most subjective thing because (laughs) to some person you can be the next (laughs) You can be the next big thing and the other thing the other person thinks you're absolutely rubbish. And I had both of those experiences <laughs> at drama school. I had people telling me I was incredible. And then I had I go to the next lesson and I got told I was awful. And you know, how do you deal with that at like 21? Like how do you deal with that? Of course you're gonna turn to the low-hanging fruit of diet culture because that's what it is. It's a low-hanging fruit. It's an it's so heavily marketed to us, of course we're going to turn there. And so I don't think it's anyone's fault if they do go down that path because society made it that easy for us to access that stuff and it made it less easy to access true mental health support to actually have, you know, thank God for podcasts like yours who are having (laughs) these conversations, but there was nothing that I was aware of that was like this 10 years ago. So that's why so many people look for other things to control other than actually dealing with the stuff. Yes. Oh, so articulate. I love that you said that. And it is so true. You know, I grew up and, you know, even at school, even the places that we most trust to raise Mm -hmm. us, there was so much around healthy eating, around sport. There was nothing. There wasn't a single mention of mental ill health through my schooling. And yet that was something that I was going through the whole time. And... Mm -hmm. It is quite terrifying, like you say, because it is so alluring. It's so successful. Of course, we want to believe these things. And, you know, that that something like changing our body through diet or through exercise is not only going to improve basically every single element of our life is what we're told, but it's also so attainable. And there's never the small print, really, 
of, okay, oh. this, this person had a different body from you starting off instead? Well, this person did an eight-week challenge and a year later is back. You know, you see these body big body transformations and you'll only see the success stories. Mm-hmm. You never see what happens in the weeks after that, the months, the years after that. You don't see what the follow-up down the line. And the sad thing is, that's when things can get really tricky within the fitness space and something I get really angry and frustrated about is that because it's so profitable and people are able to sell this service of telling you that they can make your dreams come true by if they lower your body fat percentage and you know give you this drastic before and after photo you know they're plastered all over the tube of course you want it of course it's you know it's like the biggest marketing technique within fitness full stop and so People sign up to these things, and you're right. I don't think they ever go through a, okay, so how do you then, okay, you've done a very, potentially done a very restrictive diet, you've done this really intense exercise regime that you can probably never maintain for the rest of your life, so what what do you do next? And how how do you transition people out of that? And how do you help them, you know, have a healthy relationship with food and a healthy relationship with exercise after they've been through that process? I don't personally don't think you can kind of necessarily come out of those things with a really completely intact relationship with yourself with exercise with food because I think throughout it for some people it will be more extreme than others and some people will be you know a lot less harmed but you know you come out of it with this idea of what you think exercise is and how you're eating and you know that can really mold the way you view those things years to come and you can be stuck in that cycle Mm -hmm. of thinking I have to go back you know I always have to go back to an extreme version and and the the most frustrating thing with diets is is we know there's such a high failure rate especially in that like two to five year period post initial weight loss so weight loss part is actually the easy part it's the bit that happens after that and that's why everyone thinks they're it's their fault they're the reason it's bad I'm a flawed person I just can't stick to it I have no discipline I have no willpower like if only I could be like that person on Instagram when in reality if diets worked we wouldn't be looking for the 15 billionth one you know we wouldn't be constantly trying to reinvent something that clearly doesn't have, you know, we don't have a sustainable long-term solution to weight loss. And there's something called the diet cycle. And every time we go on that diet, then we lose that weight and say we have like six months to a year and we, we feel great. And then slowly that weight comes back on, the weight we lost. And then we it's likely that our body regains more weight. And then we are like, right, well, I lost more weight. And what you did the first time isn't quite as effective. So you have to you have to push even harder. And you keep getting in that cycle and you keep having to push that bit harder every time that it gets more and more extreme, more and more dangerous. It impacts your relationship with food and your body even more. And sadly, this is how people get stuck in that cycle because, you know, we're given so much false hope and false promises. So... I feel lucky myself that I maybe went through that cycle a couple of times <laughs> and mm. I was able to get out of it. But people have been in that, been, been there since they were a kid. It's so heartbreaking and frustrating. And like I said, it's no individual's fault. There's a whole system at play here. There's a whole huge industry that's going to profit off of that. And it's not anyone's fault. The blame should never fall the individual. It's a systemic problem. And, you know, yeah. the fitness industry, sadly really likes to monopolize that and it's like, well, I see everyone else making the money. I want to make the money. So what can I sell? And once again, selling body transformations is low hanging, the low hanging fruit of the fitness industry. It's how I was taught to market my business. It's how people tell me that's if you want to build up clients and, you know, market this, you've got to tell them that you can change their body. And sadly, there's this idea that if you're not doing that as a fitness professional, you're not good at your job, which is a load of rubbish. And what's so frustrating is that Exercise is so fantastic for your mental health. It is so, like, we just know movement can be so beneficial. But it's all about the mindset you're in when you're moving is how it can be really beneficial. If you're going into something thinking it has to be painful and punishing and you're doing it, it feels like a chore and you're having to exercise because you feel you should, 
and there's no sort of element of joy or self-care. It's all like, I hate my body, I hate myself, I've got to do this because I need to burn off those crisps I had earlier because I'm going out for a takeaway and I'm going to feel awful about it, so I've got to counterbalance this all somehow. Like, how can that benefit our mental health in the way that it could if we focus on it in a, from a self-care perspective and we're thinking about, you know, how can this, you know, how can I look after my body today? How can I work with my body rather than against it? How can I move today that can help me physically process all this stuff that's going on in my head? Because, you know, there's such a physical physical component to our mental health. And so movement can be a wonderful way to help deal with that and process that and and work with that, but not in the way that we've been taught exercise currently. And so, you know, I really think we've got to make that sort of shift to intuitive movement. Mm -hmm. I so agree. And you really painted such a clear picture there of how damaging this can be to our mental health and particularly when you're struggling with that anyway. And then you're sold all these ideals of how it's going to transform your life. And then you get to that point in the cycle of self-blame. Then, of course, it's yeah. it's tempting to be like, okay, well, if I try a different diet, if I work harder, if I push myself more, and the more we do this, the more we can get, I think, trapped in. I mean, I don't quite know how to explain it, but I think you'll know what I mean. One of the things that can scare me the most with behaviours that can exist when we're struggling is how often, you know, once you've taken the cap off once, that's accessible to you. So once you've overworked and punished your body with exercise and you've gone to these extremes to lose weight or transform your life or whatever you're looking for, Mm. there's a way in which that's kind of always accessible because you've done it before and you can remember how to get into that mentality and what behaviours to do and how you can push your body through, even at times when it's screaming at you, we need to stop, we're really hurting. Mm-hmm. And was the particular point then for you where you you were waking up to this contrast between, okay, this is what my body's feeling like, this is where the promises I'm being sold aren't living up in reality, And, you know, maybe it's not my fault. Maybe there's bigger problems at play here. It took me a long time to figure that out. But I think initially for me, my, the kind of height of me being at my most disordered with with exercise specifically and food was at the very end of drama school, that kind of last year going into, then I qualified as a personal trainer like a few months later. And for me, I was living that student life in my bubble, I had a very controllable world. I had, I could control a lot of the variables in my life. And so I was really easily getting sucked in and into this kind of little hole I got into. And, you know, a lot of the behaviors I learned were things I I was copying from people I followed on Instagram. A lot of the things I was learning about viewing health and fitness and food and exercise and how much I should be eating and you know, what my body should look like and how I should be exercising. I would say a good, like, 90% of that was shaped by Instagram. And so for me, it wasn't until the things that kind of, like, jolted me out of that and probably truly going, like, right over the edge with it was that I kind of entered into a different life. I had to move back home for a bit, desperately still tried to control everything, but my lifestyle was different than before. My body started changing because I couldn't keep up with what I had done previously it was like so much and that still caused me a lot of mental anguish and I hated the fact that I was gaining weight and I hated the fact that my body didn't quite look like it did and I couldn't quite do the amount of stuff I was doing before and I'd also started a new relationship at that point which is still the current relationship I'm in and there was just a process of like so many things I was controlling being taken away from me and having to kind of integrate into the, the quote, real world <laughs> that forced me out of my comfort zone of of kind of my disorder and specifically my orthorexia. That's what I really identify with, having a very controlling relationship and obsession with being healthy and fit and eating clean and all those kinds of stuff. And so it took me a few years to kind of have enough. I still went and did a few more kind of attempts at dieting and everything, but I just couldn't, I couldn't ever quite do it. And my body never responded in the same way like it did initially. And 
I just naturally was like, I'm fed up of this. I'm fed up of like looking at myself and feeling like it's not good enough. I just don't want to feel like that. And it was a really slow process. And for me, I discovered intuitive eating, which is a framework created by two dietitians, which specifically helps people reconnect with their bodies and build an intuitive relationship with food. So people think of it often as just about hunger and eating when you're hungry and something when you're full, but it's also about rejecting the diet mentality and learning how food is linked with our emotions and, you know, challenging so many of the rules we have around food and where we learned those rules from. And so for me, that was actually a bit further down the line of sort of my own recovery journey. And that was probably about five years ago now. And it just jolted me. I was like, this is the piece in the puzzle that I've been looking for. Like this it's like, I feel so, I feel so seen and this is exactly what I need. So that was a huge turning point, but it was a few years of slowly challenging things, of slowly not being able to do all the things I wanted to do, of slowly letting go of a lot of the kind of hard rules I put myself. But I do see in other people, I do see, you know, like you say, how easy it is to get back into that mindset and get stuck Mm -hmm. into that mindset and you know it's about especially because we know with eating disorders in general like generally one of the big things is like isolating ourselves from other people so that we can do all of these things that we want to do and I think for me I wasn't able to do there was a point where I got past the point of being able to quite withdraw and isolate like I had done because I really had done previously and I think that's what helped me initially get out of the rut I was stuck in. Yeah. And it's a difficult process and it's difficult to unpick how strongly we can internalise these things. Intuitive eating has been a big part of me around eating disorder recovery Mm. as well, of, you know, in a simple sense, realising that I can't always trust my brain, I can't always trust these thoughts that come up, the way that I may put kind of goals and goalposts into eating and you know prize hunger and instead okay how can I pay attention to my body and try and follow a more kind of organic clock when I'm not always feeling like I I can be responsible for making the right choices and so it's really fascinating to hear your perspective on that applying it to intuitive fitness because I can so see that link particularly like we've talked about, I would go as far as to say when it comes to fitness, you know, even the people that quote unquote win, they still lose because we can't achieve all the things we're sold. Or I think even the people that, you know, are the kind of gym bunnies, they're still looking across, you know, maybe it's like a guy that's really massive, really built, is still looking across at someone that's maybe a runner and thinks, oh, I wish I was as speedy as you and vice versa. And, you know, I I know that's something you've talked about with your own journey of drama school was a part of this. Mm. But only years later, you realised actually how counterintuitive it was because the focus was on what I look like, not am I stretching properly? What's my, you know, agility? What's my stamina like for dancing and other things as opposed to, you know, how do I look being the primary focus? And yet, potentially there is still an opportunity in in the kind of yardstick of fitness that there can be so many toxic ways in which we can incentivize it and look at it very narrowly. But also there are a lot of ways in which it can really benefit us. We can set healthy goals for ourselves And can you share a little bit about how you found that side and intuitive fitness generally? Yeah, so intuitive movement has drawn a lot of parallels from intuitive eating. And I attribute Evelyn Tripoli and Elise Resch, the creators of intuitive eating, as being a massive source of inspiration for my work. Without them, this wouldn't exist and I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing because you know, they really spoke about your relationship with food. But I feel that, like you're saying, just as our relationship with food can be really complicated, so is our relationship with exercise and fitness. And we don't have enough opportunity to talk about that. And I'll just let this plane go by. I don't know if you can hear it. It's really loud. I, can you I not? I can't. No, your mic is oh, okay, working. Okay, crap, I'll keep talking. Yeah, Sometimes I get really, like, 
<laughs> I get really self-conscious of the fact that I live under a flight path. But as much as our relationship with food is complicated and we need to peel back the layers and really look at all those different aspects and intuitive eating does that through the 10 principles. The same can be said for our relationship with movement and exercise. And so we need to have a framework that helps us look at the different aspects of exercise and why we feel the way we feel. And so I originally was inspired to write about it in my first book, Train Happy. And I have since written the Train Happy Journal. I think of Train Happy as like the the kind of ethos. This is your like, get an overview of everything, you know, my stance on fitness and why I think we, you know, the, the why, why do we feel the way we do about our bodies? Why do we feel the way we do about exercise? All the kind of stuff we've been talking about. And then the journal is like the how to, really how to put this into practice and challenge so many of these, the narrative we have around exercise. And, you know, like I've said, that narrative is largely steeped in exercise. It's punishing, it's painful, it's about changing your body. And that leaves a lot of people either in the space where they're either very stuck in an all or nothing cycle. They can be very indifferent and kind of like, oh, well, I don't care. So I'm not going, I'm not going to do any movement at all. You get people who work out really rigidly, have a lot of rules, and then, you know, force themselves to exercise in a way that they think is, quote, the most effective rather than anything they actually enjoy and slowly burn themselves out with that, you know, there's a lot of guilt around rest within that. There's a lot of guilt around not doing enough. You know, I very much identify with that rigid perspective. That's certainly where I was. And so this framework of intuitive movement that I have created is about helping people just really reflect and dissect that relationship and evaluate, you know, why do you why do you think that in order to do a workout that you must you must do at least 45 minutes where did that come from Mm. why do you think that why why can't it be less why can't it be 15 minutes why why can't it be 10 why can't it be half an hour who told you that it has to be that long you know so many people have the rule of you I must burn x amount of calories and until I'm allowed to stop yeah well why where did that number come from who planted that number in your head where did you read it who told you you know I like to challenge people to get really specific on it's almost like doing an audit on your relationship with (laughs) exercise like why am I like why why do I have all these things I mean we can pin a lot of it back to diet culture and diet culture narratives that are filtered through magazines tv shows fitness professionals and that's why we feel the way we do and so in the same way that intuitive eating is about reconnecting you with your body to help you feel that hunger and fullness to help you understand you know and trust yourself. We're doing the same with movement because so many people do not trust themselves to move their bodies because the biggest thing I hear about intuitive movement is, yeah, so if I moved intuitively, I would never do anything at all and I'd just sit on my sofa all day. And of course, of course, people think that. Of course they think that because they're told that they either have to do like big, hard, intense gym sessions with burpees and all sorts and for it to be effective or like doing a small amount isn't worth anything. But like we've said, there are so many benefits to moving your body. And actually in in the book, Train Happy, I did like a table of benefits. And I think in there, there's about 30 benefits, both physical and specifically mental health benefits listed in there as well. And none of those mention weight or the scales. None of those mention aesthetic goals. All of those are related to how they can help you improve your physical strength, your stamina, your speed, agility, like you mentioned, your coordination, your balance, you know, they can be hugely beneficial to your confidence, your self-esteem, to, you know, helping you manage anxiety, helping people manage depression and manage these things. I don't necessarily think it's a complete, it's not a salve, it's not the the cure-all that we're necessarily told it is, because We should definitely talk about that, but it can play a, it can be a really important tool in our self-care toolbox, but it's only a self-care toolbox if we approach it in a kind way, in a way that speaks kindly to ourselves, speaks kindly to our bodies, that, you know, doesn't tell us we have to be perfect for it to be beneficial. And when we are approaching it in that kind of punishing and punitive mindset, then 
it's just not going to have the same impact on our overall mental well-being. Because if you're doing something from a place of hate, why would it be, you know, how could that possibly positively impact your mental health? And just a side note for people listening, if hating yourself worked, we n- none of us would be in this position, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, like <laughs> There'd if that be a was lot the of solution, happy people, yep. Because I think a lot of people think like, oh, well, if I just shame myself, if I just hate myself and shame myself, then, I, then I'll finally make that change. I'm like, of course you won't. Of course you won't. Why would you? So we've got to shift. We've got to make that mindset shift. And so intuitive movement specifically is about, is a mindset thing. It's not like exercise is objectively exercise. It's I use the word movement a lot because I think it can have a lot of negative connotations for people, whether that be like he experience or just maybe a disordered relationship in the past, or maybe it's very linked to restriction and, you know, like that punishing time. Yeah, well, I think it's a term that people think of very specifically, that it's something you achieve, you need to move a certain amount Mm -hmm. to be exercised, and actually walking across your kitchen movement, it all counts. It does. You're you're ahead of the game. (laughs) I think, yeah, movement is all-encompassing, and so... You know, I do an exercise with people in the Train Happy Journal and I've been working with people on it in the last couple of weeks about getting them to kind of list all the different ways you can move your body, really expanding what it is because it's so much more than the gym. Like, what are the other ways you can move your body? And we've had, like, cleaning and yoga and pole dancing and roller skating and swimming and paddleboarding and rock climbing. There's so many different ways. And, yeah, I think there's such narrow view we have means that so many of us miss out on the benefits because we think it has to look like that narrow view, but it can look like what you want it to be. Yeah. And so as we start to wrap up, can we share a few quick fire ways in which we can start to unpick this mentality in our head? Because there is such a overload of information that we're fighting against to the point where Mm -hmm. it can be so extreme. How can I phrase it? It can be almost taken for granted how little we listen to our bodies because we're so focused on how our appearance is perceived and all the stuff that we read and we hear. And so uh, I'll start. One of the ones that's been really helpful to me is finding ways that even if it's something small, you can pay attention to, okay, how is my body responding to this movement as opposed Mm. to, you know, Am I counting with numbers? Am I counting by how many minutes we should do? And so, for example, your heart rate increasing shows that it's working, shows that something's happening. And if you make, for me, that's been a good one to make a core basis because then walking quickly counts. You know, then things that that I really love doing, like skiing, I I love it because it doesn't even feel like sport. And yet I can feel, I can notice in my body the the aches at the end of the day, they're going to bed. And sometimes your legs still feel like they're skiing as you're drifting Mm -hmm. off. You can notice the heart rate. You can, you know, take off your gear and be like, oh, I'm a bit sweaty, who knew? And if we can pay attention to these things, we can find, oh, okay, so this is something that I love, that also there's all these signs as opposed to, okay, what external expectations around exercise can I possibly tolerate or in its extreme we can internalize so much of this stuff that we feel we have to punish ourselves because the pain and the overworking is what we deserve so you know what can our what can our body tell us that's true that would be that would be my contribution I love that I think really practical ways of doing that are if people wearing fitness watches and trackers I don't think they're inherently bad, but I always think they're worth taking a break from if you're specifically trying to work on your on listening to your body and connecting with it because a huge barrier can be, oh, how, you know, am I tired yet? What does my heart rate monitor tell me? Rather than going like, am I tired? What does my body feel like? Can I feel my heart beating fast? Like, does this feel too much rather than relying on, you know, a watch on your wrist to tell you like the best tracker you have is you <laughs> and we kind of forget that because you know we outsource everything like mm-hmm. you've said so I think that's a really practical place for people to start and for people who do move in the gym and do use equipment like that cover the screen with a towel and see what it feels like to move without knowing the time the pace the 
calorie burn, like how take away those numbers from it and just reflect on like, what does it feel like to be in your body? I I really love that as well, because I've known people that have tried that, uh, particularly around yoga. And what they Mm -hmm. tend to find is then the amount of time they do it increases as they get more used to the different poses, as they get stronger, as they get stretchier. And so we'll kind of naturally commit to more because it'll feel like, oh, I've not done as much time because my body's coping better with the, the strain of this. Another key aspect that links really nicely onto that is this idea of unconditional permission to rest. And this is something we talk about. It's one of the principles within the book and the journal. And it's this idea that no matter what, you are allowed to stop at any point. You are allowed to rest whenever you want. You could be two minutes into whatever you're doing, but if you're not feeling it, you're allowed to rest. And that helps us. I feel like it provides a very like metaphorical kind of safety blanket in our minds so that we know that like if you know what if we don't want to do it we don't have to we can stop we can rest we can modify and therefore we're more likely to explore then we're more likely to give it a go and then when we're not clock watching and we're not watching looking at numbers or whatever we kind of work with our body chances are you might end up doing a bit more there might also be times when you go do you know what I usually used to force myself to run you know five miles but actually I've done 4.3 and I'm good so I'm going to stop there and that's fine and just letting challenging those little rules you have through this unconditional permission to rest is so key and that is a really crucial part for people and then my final one would be because I could really overwhelm you but I'm going (laughs) to obviously I'm going to really overwhelm you but my final one would be make a list of different types of movement that you're just curious to try You know, it could be anything from trampolining to Zumba to, I don't know, ice skating. And then just give them a go. You don't have to, you don't even have to like them when you try them, but just be curious about what things feel like and what activity works for you and what movement works for you. Because for so many people, they're not, they don't want to slave away in a gym. They don't necessarily want to do that. They want to be outdoors. Maybe the outdoors is your thing. So Find what works for you and do what you enjoy and don't feel like you have to do what anyone else is doing. Yes, I love that. And the only thing I'd add to that really is around, we reference fitness watches. And particularly there's this idea of 10,000 steps a day, which (laughs) I've looked into previously and it turns out completely arbitrary number created Was the research behind it to help justify the arbitrary number? Yes. But ultimately, it was created to sell these kind of fitness devices. And so, you know, that's one that definitely I think people can, if they're in the habit of it, is it a bad number? Does it help your fitness to have a name in that? No, not necessarily. But one of the ways... If you're running up and down your stairs at the end of the day to try and meet that number, (laughs) red flag. Yeah. You know what I mean? I've been with people, they... I've been sat with people at the table. They get up and pace around their kitchen to hit their target. And I'm like, this ain't intuitive. (laughs) Yeah, and if if anything, the intuitive can be... The intuitive thing as well there can be, okay, well, look at how you're responding to these numbers. Does your own logic even make sense? Mm. Because a lot of people will... Maybe they they miss 10,000 steps. They need to go overboard the next day. And because if you remind yourself it's an arbitrary number, then there's no difference between doing 9,000 one day and 10,000 the next. Mm. There's no need to to be upping it further. If 10,000 is supposedly the thing, why are you doing 11,000 the next day? Just, Just do it most of the time. And that's, that's why I say to people, take the break from the fitness watch for a bit yeah. and uh, re- and reflect on your relationship with it. Because if you feel yourself really missing it and being like, oh my goodness, I didn't realise how much it was dictating a lot of what I was doing and a lot of how I was feeling about it. And then when you're ready, and then in time, you might want to br- put it back on. But if you can look at that number and feel neutral about it, that's a good place to be. If it, you don't feel neutral about it, then you probably need to have a bit more of a break from it. Maybe we and remarket them. Maybe we set them up yeah. as something to check how intuitive you're being. And so if you miss oh. a thousand and then you add three thousand the next day, that's that's the thing to watch out for. Not necessarily do I hit this number every day or not, and will the world melt if I don't? No. 
No, it won't, because some days you're going to be sat on your bum all day because there's no reason to go and do leave the house, whatever, or you're travelling or whatever happens, and life happens. And I think we just need to take the pressure away from people that, you know, we're so judged by our productivity and what we can achieve every day. And I think this particular example of the 10,000 steps a day is just another thing that we feel like, oh, my goodness, I didn't even get my 10,000 steps in. Like, I'm a terrible person. And it's another kind of bit of evidence we give to ourselves as to why we failed as a human being. And we just don't need that pressure in your life. You don't need that pressure. If you've cleaned your house, if, you, if you're doing whatever, you know, if you all you have time for is a little gentle stretch, that's fine. Unconditional permission to rest. You're always allowed to rest. Love it. What a great note to wrap up on. And so if people want to go find Train Happy or even the following journal, the Train Happy journal, that has even more kind of practical ways to Mm. fold this in as part of your life, I mean, by all means, get both. Where could people find them? You can find them on Amazon, all good bookstores. And yeah, I really recommend if you're really wanting to put this into practice in your life, the journal is a really fantastic tool and the book gives the, the journal really great context. So I think if you want to get both, treat yourself. It's a self-care investment, isn't it? <laughs> yep. Permission to rest, permission to also buy self-care <laughs> books. Absolutely. And then I'd also like to add, I've got the Train Happy podcast as well, which is a free resource. So there's tons of conversations like this for people. Going back, we talk about everything, lots of mental health conversations, lots of body image conversations, lots of, lots of things about exercise and food and all of all of stuff we've chatted about today yes including i listened to your recent episode with dr rada who was a previous guest on this show so that could be a good jumping in point yeah i need to yeah i want to get her back on the show like of course because she's brilliant but also partly because she's just so lovely (laughs) and i want to catch up with her yeah she's just got the nicest warmest loveliest presence I know. I was like, if I ever live in London, she has to be my GP. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure she's hugely oversubscribed. But anyway, we'll wrap up there. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening. For a list of our recommended resources, visit mentalpodcast.co.uk. And remember, we are in no way a substitute for qualified counselling or other mental health support. Our show is edited and produced by the brilliant Pete Murta with licensed music by NetSky. Links in the description. Speak to you next Thursday and remember, you are enough. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com.